you might like to keep your Bibles open at that one passage from 1 Peter, uh, chapter 4. I want to begin by asking a question. Uh, why is it that Christians often face tough times or persecution or suffering? I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about that. Um, we follow the one who's overcome. We're on the winning team, aren't we? Um, God knows things. In fact, we say that God knows everything. Uh, God is able to do anything. We know that on the cross, God defeated the devil. Doesn't that put us in a bit of a, a winning spot? Can't he stop us facing tough times? Why, why doesn't God make our lives a little more pleasant? Why can't God remove persecution? Because we're victors. We have a victory message. Well, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 begins by reminding God's people of the wonderful inheritance that has been won for them and kept in heaven for them. The inheritance is a great reason to rejoice. We are God's people, it says in chapter 2. We have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Sin has been conquered. That inheritance is great reason to rejoice. But 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 says that the inheritance that is being won for us with Je- by Jesus will result in those who stand with Jesus having to face grief in all kinds of trials. Uh, Peter clearly reminds God's people that the great victory that God has won for us does not mean that the life for Christians, for you and I and for the initial readers of this letter, will be all beer and skittles. So why doesn't God make life easy on us, easy on life on earth easy for us? Well, verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7 says why? These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And we at this service get lollies for knowing that one. That's a good passage, isn't it? God allows his people to suffer grief in all kinds of trials so that our faith in him is refined. And we're approaching the end of 1 Peter chapter, oh, of the book of 1 Peter, sorry, and we're re- returning to that topic in chapter 4 of how will you and I live in the face of persecution? How about I pray and pray that God's word does its work in our lives. Lord, help us to focus on your word, remove the distractions from our thinking and the busyness from life. And Lord, we pray that your word and your spirit will do its work in our lives to grow us into your people, not just as individuals, but as a church, so that we will live for your glory in your world. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Uh, How do you respond to trials of various kinds that you've had to face as Christians because you've been an obedient follower of Jesus? Of course, there's all the trials that you've had to face because you're just plain stupid like me. 
But we're talking about the obedient Christian trials. I think that's a pretty lame question to have to ask, actually, for us in Australia. Um, this is what persecution's like for most Christians around the world, by the way, not for us. In Pakistan, the persecution that happens to them is very different to what happens to you or I. If any of you have a job that you enjoy, then you have no idea what it's like to live in Pakistan as a Christian. Suffering for the sake of the gospel does not sound like suffering when we live in houses that are worth a small fortune, often owning them, when we drive cars that are worth a small fortune, often owning them, when we go on expensive holidays each year because, well, that's what we do in this country, when we're all about to get a little fatter at our lavish Christmas dinners, when we have so much material things in life that few of us have, have, find it easy to write a Christmas gift list, we have trouble speaking of suffering. In North Korea, let's have an idea what it means to suffer. They guess, and it is a guess, that the, the figures range between 50 and I think 120,000 people are in jail. I'm settling on 70. 70,000 Christians are in concentration camps because of their faith. Not because they've done something silly, but because they know Jesus. They've talked about Jesus. Some of them are in jail because, in the concentration camps because they owned the little black book, which is not the book of communism, it's actually the Bible. Most of those Christians will die in jail just because it's not a five-star luxury retreat. Uh, my prayer letter that came from Barnabas Fund this week on Wednesday as I was writing, it asked us to pray for Christians in the Middle East. Because in the Middle East, to be a Christian at the moment means that as you gather to celebrate the birth of Jesus, a bomb is more likely to go off in your church or someone more likely to shoot you on the way to or from or at church. I don't think that really crossed my mind this morning as I came. Um, Barnabas Fund asked us to pray for two Christians who are sentenced to death because they blasphemed and they blasphemed by posting something that someone deemed disrespectful on the internet. It asked us to pray for Christians who are arrested by secret police and it speaks of a Sri Lankan pastor that was abducted. Now I know there's plenty of people that have hoped that I got abducted on the way to church but it actually happens there. And after I'd written all of this, the secular media started running a, a post from China. Christmas is the time this year in China that they plan to target the Christian church. And they're doing so because they're seen as a threat to China. I'm sure it's just a bit of anti-Chinese sentiment that it's been published in our secular media. It has been happening for a while. You see, it feels like when we speak about being persecuted for our faith, we've got nothing to complain about. And yet I meet people all the time that seem very surprised that our culture doesn't like Christian Christmas carols or that a business in Australia has had to shut its magazine because they don't want to glorify something that God doesn't like. We have people who are surprised because being a visible Christian in their workplace has meant they haven't got the promotions they felt they, they were due. We have people who are surprised because being a Christian has mean I meant that I might get taken to my to the court for my faith in Jesus. I reckon that all of us would be surprised 
if next week when we came to church, the police were videoing us so that they could identify us for later research or later arrests. I think we'd probably all be surprised if we received a notice from our local council telling us we are no longer able to put anything Christian up in the front displays. How would you feel if you were arrested for Jesus? Arrested for following Jesus, not just because you've been driving silly or talking on your phone whilst you're driving, but arrested because you follow Jesus. Well, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse... Uh, 12 says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which has come upon you to test you. Um, now, that what's happening to these guys, they could literally be facing fiery ordeals. Uh, that wasn't uncommon. I won't go into details because we're still in kid times. Um, but, but Christians often got burnt by fire. But I have a feeling that 1 Peter is talking more about what it talks about in chapter 1 verse 7, the whole idea of trials of various kinds being things that refine us. Like fire refines gold. This is the point that Christians should, we need to pick up regardless of whether it's literal fire or, for, or refining effect of persecution, is that we shouldn't be surprised when this happens. And they might have been surprised because these people are God's people. We've read about that. They have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. They are God's holy people, living stones, God's elect people. They are people who are called to declare the praises of God, who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. These are people that have an eternal inheritance. And they might be surprised because when you belong to God's family... In a way, you would expect that if persecution happens to you, first of all, you've got to deal with God. When I went to school, there was a guy called Bonesy. Uh, Bonesy was called Bonesy because he was a bag of bones and that's about it. But Bonesy had a brother whose name was Curtis. Bonesy's surname was Clout. It was a bit of a misnomer. But Curtis's surname also was Clout, was known for punching out bus drivers and teachers. Bonesy thought he was safe when Curtis was around and we can treat God like that. We can think that our God is king and no one can ever lay a hand on us. No one can ever make life hard for us. We are victors and if someone makes our life bad, we'll just dob them into God and he'll take care of them. I hope by now, as we work through 1 Peter, you know that that's really wrong thinking. I hope by now that you've realised that suffering for being a Christian is actually the normal Christian life. That doesn't mean that suffering will always happen. Uh, Some friends of ours were serving over in China a number of years ago, um, almost 20 years ago, and the province they were in, the local authorities actually encouraged them to talk about their faith. But other provinces, it was quite dangerous to talk about your faith. And my bet is that as Peter is riding to a large area between Pontius, Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia and Bithynia, some of the churches in that large area are getting hassled for their faith and some of the churches are just getting on serving God with impunity. Of course, things change, don't they? So don't be surprised when persecution happens. 
So what do you do when persecution happens? We, we touched on some of this last week as we thought about what we should be doing as a church in a world that doesn't know Jesus. The first part of chapter 4. Let me just quickly remind us of the points, not go through the detail. We should be a church that prays together. We should be a church who loves one another deeply and is prepared to overlook each other's sins as we serve for God. Not put up with sin and not enjoy sin, but not hold sin against them. We should be a church that seeks to show genuine, deep hospitality to one another, to serve one another with the gifts that God's given us. We should be a church that wants to speak God's word to each other and so that God's word shapes the way we live together as his people. Now, I'm not going to repeat all of that except just to raise it because this week we're looking at how we as a church should be understanding why God sends us that suffering so that we might respond well to God, not just to each other. Well, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13 says, Don't be surprised, rejoice. Rejoice in the face of trials of various kinds. Now, I have not met many people who've hit their thumb with a hammer and think, wow, this is a wonderful experience I don't meet many people that are just queuing up outside jail to get inside to be able to enjoy the wonders of jail. Now that's for their faith or not for their faith just because they're being silly. People don't enjoy those environments. How the heck will we ever find ourselves in those environments and be able to rejoice? Well, the passage actually gives us another number of reasons why we should be able to rejoice. Verse 13 because we're participating in the sufferings of Christ. Now, I touched on this last week. Don't ever get the idea that if you suffer for the sake of the gospel, you are somehow achieving your salvation and paying the debt of your sin and wiping away the guilt of your sin. Because 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, won't let us think that way. It's a memory verse for those who like lollies. Christ died for sins once for all the righteous, for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Once for all. He paid the debt of my sin and your sin so that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence to pinch some words from Hebrews. What does it mean that you're suffering uh, like Jesus suffered, participating in his suffering? Well, you've just been obedient to God like he was. And in a world that is hostile to God, whether it's open hostile or underground hostile, Satan wants to make sure you don't serve God well. It may well cost you everything, but verse 13 does tell us that as we suffer for the sake of the gospel and may well lose everything on this earth, we have our eyes fixed on heaven when the glory of God will be revealed, when we're in heaven. Now, we get a partial glimpse of that when we as God's people actually live for God's glory on this earth. We we will experience it in perfection for eternity in heaven. That should motivate us, shouldn't it? The second reason why the passage gives us as to why we can rejoice in the face of suffering, because it says it's proof that the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, I think what that's saying is it's proof that you're a genuine Christian. You have God's spirit and you seek God's glory. You see, fake Christians bail on God as soon as the heat gets turned on. Fake Christians are not prepared to count the cost. 
And so what they do is they change their theology or they change their practice so that even though they might call themselves Christians, they are no longer Christians if you compare them to what the Bible says. So suffering for the sake of the gospel reveals that we actually do identify with Christ and we are serious about following him. We have God's spirit. We seek God's glory. Verse 15 and 16 give us a third reason why we can uh, rejoice in the face of suffering Uh, because actually obedience to God doesn't bring shame. Uh, The fact that Christians should or should not feel shame for their actions and for their impact of their actions and that, that they have both on the glory of God and on the people of God is probably something we are not all that familiar with. We don't live in a shame culture but Peter's audience did and in a way our culture is changing. It would be a great shame on your family, on your community, uh, if you did the wrong thing. Now, we've seen that just recently with some terrible tragedies over in Morocco where the family says, where the, sorry, where the, um, the community says, you have shamed us. We've seen it in Australia. Just follow cricket. And if you're a Port Adelaide fan, you should be shamed all the time. But that's another whole story. That's half of the people gone. Well, if you're a, 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 what's the other team we play? Crows. Oh, no, no. You see, we don't think of how our actions cause us changes in social standing or our family or our church changing. What we think about is, how dare you tell me what I can and can't do? I'm indignant that you've ashamed me. I'm indignant that you actually have corrected my wrong thinking. And in a church culture, what we do is we just simply up and go somewhere else where everyone just affirms whatever we're going to think and say and do anyhow. So how does that work? Well, suffering for the sake of the gospel, and it brings great shame, great great suffering, and you have to go and visit your family in prison, what do we do? We're not shamed about that. That's just part and parcel of living for, the God, for, for God's glory. We don't need to feel shame that Christians line up on prison open days to see their families because Christianity is worthwhile because God is glorious. Verse 15, it reminds us of something that one Peter has already talked about, that if you suffer for the sake of being, because you're silly, you break the law, or because you've been a pain in the backside and meddling in someone else's affairs, then that's your own fault and that does bring you shame because that is not what Christian living is about. You see, our zeal for God does not give us the right to force Christianity on anyone who doesn't want to follow Jesus. It doesn't give us the right to take the law into our own hands and take out those that we disagree with. Sure, we might actually have to do something that the culture doesn't like, but we stand and bear the cost of that, not force it on others. If you are meddling in other people's affairs... If you're taking out those you disagree with, well, you should be ashamed because it's not God-glorifying. But it does say in verse 15, if you do suffer for being a Christian, don't be ashamed at all. That is a good thing because obedience to God is not something to be ashamed about. It does not bring God's name into disrepute. It does not bring God's people into disrepute. It is for God's glory. So rejoice.
And the final reason I think the passage gives us is why we can rejoice in suffering, verse 17 and 18, well, it's actually refining us. Now, you might notice verse 17 and 18 don't use the word refine. They use the word judging. And I'm picking up on the idea that God's judgment refines us because what Peter's already said in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1. You see, God is refining us with various trials or trials of various kinds. And judgment it's the word used is not referring to an eternity judgment. It's referring more to the, discern, the, to, to the testing judgment, uh, discerning whether this person is serious with God. God already knows that, but guess what? He's revealing that to us or not. See, God has begun judging us as a church. Are we on board with God or not? Are we going to stand with God or not? And then when the heat gets turned up, are we going to keep standing with God? And his judgment will start with us and continue on to everyone. For us, as the heat gets turned up, literally or metaphorically, we are being refined and purified and strengthened and learning how to trust God in a world which is hostile to him, even if it means us losing everything. And we can rejoice in that because when it happens, we will be participating in the sufferings of Christ. We can rejoice because it will show the proven genuineness of our faith. We can rejoice because it won't actually be bringing us shame. We can rejoice because actually God is refining us to his glory. There are good reasons why God allows us to suffer. But there's a final thing that this passage does say in verse 19. When suffering happens, you can't run and hide. And you can't stop doing what God's told us to do. Let me reread what it says. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Continue to do the very thing that may have caused you to suffer. As you serve God, as you commit to your faithful creator, as people pay out on you. 1 Peter, we've looked at in really small sections. There's lots in it, isn't there? It's reminded us of the great status that we have as God's people and the inheritance that we have as God's people. And it's called us to live in light of that inheritance so that God is glorified and so that others come to know who God is and what he's done for them. You see, the inheritance is not just for us. God wants people to know him. God wants people in Laos to know him. God wants people in Tea Tree Gully to know him. And if we take it seriously, that will cause the heat to be turned up on us. So how does a passage like this impact us today? Hopefully you've seen had a few insights already. Uh, but I want to ask the question of why is it that we can live in Australia and not be like Pakistan? Why is it that we... Uh, think about suffering as being such a rarity for us as God's people. I think there's a couple of reasons. Let me suggest a good reason and a bad reason. Here's the bad one. We often live in our culture without receiving much kickback from our culture because we live as cultural Christians. 
Let me explain what I mean. We don't try all that hard to tell people the gospel. Often. I'm sure there's occasions when you're really fired up. Everyone likes people in our culture who help people. Doesn't matter what you believe, if you help people, everyone will pat you on the back. But if you tell people they need to change their thinking and start following Jesus, they don't like it. Nothing's changed, by the way. We read about that in Acts. As soon as the people that they proclaimed as God, you know, as soon as they said, no, you need to get to know Jesus and you need to put aside these things and start to they, they tried to stone them. And we're not much different sometimes when we just operate as cultural Christians and never actually talk about the truth of the gospel. We stop evangelising. We're nice people. Everyone likes nice people. And sometimes we even change our theology. There was a, there was a feed on one of the news things I quickly saw this morning, uh, mainly speaking about the Catholic Church, and this is how the world would like the Catholic Church more, and basically if it changed all its theology. Everyone likes someone who just affirms them. Uh, we gather together around, as God's people around his word and we desire to be changed by that word. But sometimes we also desire not to get too changed in case a better offer comes up. We would be quite happy to miss church and go to the local family barbecue or miss church and go and watch the footy or whatever is yours. Or mine, I have to turn up because they pay me to do it. I'll probably be just as bad if they didn't. Uh, we live lives like everyone else, don't we? And I say we. We spend our money on the same things that God and give God the leftovers. Uh, we go on the similar holidays. We don't stand out as God's people. I think we all struggle with that. And I think that persecution would come a lot more if we did stand out, if we took Christian, biblical Christianity a little more seriously. That's the bad reason of why we don't stand out. Possibly the good reason. You can work it out later. We live in a country that has been shaped by Judeo-Christian values. Now, Australia is not Christian. That would be very naive to have ever thought that. Lots of people on their census forms tick the box, but, well... Anyone can tick anything on a census form, can't they? They've had Christianity at school. They've had Christianity in their workplace. That was a long time ago. Most Australians think that they're Christians based on what they tick, but they wouldn't know God if they fell over him. They don't talk with him. They don't read his word. They don't live in light of what he says. They wouldn't know that Jesus died for their sins because they don't see themselves as sinners. And so people who think they're like us, even if they're not, generally don't get upset with us when we talk about what we believe, unless we ask them to change, which is the first point. And so that's probably another reason why we don't face as much persecution. You can talk about that later um, if you th and talk about whether you think I'm right. I want to leave us with some questions because I think the passage actually leads us to think about these questions. How are you going to live out the goodness of the gospel in a way which doesn't compromise the gospel but keeps the gospel front and centre in your life?
How are you going to do that? How are you planning to engage non-Christians so that they come to know Jesus? If your strategy is to stand out the front of your house and scream at people on the way past, don't think that's an effective strategy. Have a look at what 1 Peter says, some of the stuff we've been covering already. How are we going to love each other in the face of trials of various kinds? And how are you and us together going to rejoice when they happen? How about I pray? I guess, Lord, we all love a, uh, a feel-good message and sometimes your word just reminds us of, that life's not all about feel-good. Uh, but, Lord, we do want to rejoice, not because of the things that normally might make us rejoice, but because of the goodness of the gospel. For what your word says, we rejoice that we are your people. We rejoice that we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. We rejoice that it is a privilege to be known by you and to live for you and to suffer like you. We rejoice, Lord God, that as your people, that when things go pear-shaped for us, because we follow you, it brings you glory, not shame. We thank you, Lord God, that in the midst of suffering, it reveals really where we stand and really where our hope is. May your word and your spirit work in us so that it's not just our words that are changed, but our life that's changed by what your word says. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.